If you would, take your Bible at this time and join me in standing if you're able to do so. Uh, For the reading of God's Word, we're going to turn to Mark chapter number 10. We're going to continue being in the book of Mark today. Mark chapter 10, we're going to look at just three verses this morning. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through verse 34. Mark chapter 10. In verse 32, the word of God says, And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him, and they shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Go ahead and be seated, if you would, please. Here in uh, Mark chapter number 10, as we have learned, Jesus is winding down his public ministry as he begins his way to Jerusalem to become the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. Last Sunday, for those who were here, you may recall that uh, we, we saw that when Peter said that they had left all in order to follow Christ. And when that happens, there are promises for those who do decide to pursue the Lord. Uh, now in this life and in the life to come in glory, in verses Uh, 28 through verse number 31, we saw that. And after he teaches that lesson, Jesus then begins a walk. But this walk was a little different than the walks he had taken before. This was different. This was a determined walk. And that's the title of the message today, A Determined Walk. Uh, This past Friday night um, was a beautiful night weather-wise here in Oklahoma. And It was ideal, it doesn't get more ideal weather for motorcycle riding. And so our children noticed that and they said, hey, could you take us on some motorcycle rides? And I said, yes, I would. And so I took Mark and uh, he and I went and did a little uh, journey. And then then Seth said, hey, I want to learn how to ride a motorcycle. I don't know if you knew this, Julie. You did? Okay. We actually didn't talk about this after the fact. I didn't really want to bring it up, but uh, Seth wanted to try to learn how to ride a motorcycle, and so we tried a little bit, and uh, he got the hang of it, mm, sort of. Uh, he needs several more lessons before I would say he knows how to ride a motorcycle. I imagine you know how to fly a airplane a lot better than you know how to ride a motorcycle, but it's vice versa for me. Well, anyway, uh, finally, after trying and letting Seth be in front, and I was kind of in the back trying to coach him and, and guide his hands and, and, and all that. I was like, okay, enough of this. You get in the back. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I'll just take him around the neighborhood real quick. Well, there was a, there was a white car. Do you remember this, Seth? A white car in front of us. And, uh, and it was going, you know, in our neighborhood, the, the speed limit is 25 miles per hour. And as a, as a motorcycle rider, I want to go at least 25 miles an hour for it to be worth it. And so um, 
I was going to only try to go 25 miles an hour. Well, this car in front of us was going about, I don't know, 15 miles an hour. And uh, we're kind of like, you know, kind of putting along and it's getting boring. And, and, and it kind of like stops a little bit and kind of slows down this car in front of us. And Seth finally leaned over to me where I could hear him. And he said, I don't think they know where they're going. I don't think that they may even be lost. And I was like, I think you're right. And finally, they looked in the rearview mirror and saw this motorcycle. I wouldn't say I was tailgating, but <laughs> I wasn't, there wasn't a huge amount of distance between me and the car because you know how that goes when you're trying to let somebody know you're there. And so I was doing that, and, and finally they kind of went, oh, okay, and, and sped up a little bit and kind of got over, and, and then we passed them, and we're like, okay, finally we can go 25 miles per hour-ish, Okay. And so we were going and, and did a lot more enjoyment. Okay, well, as I thought about that white car just not really having any purpose, any direction, any determination, that is not exactly, or that, the, the walk that Jesus is taking here in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, was completely opposite from the white car that was in front of me. See, uh, Jesus knew exactly where he was going and why he was going there. This was a, there was a definite, noticeable determination in the walk that he was uh, taking here. And uh, I want to take a few minutes this morning and examine this determined walk and, and see hopefully some very important lessons that we can learn and apply to our own lives today. And so with that, let's jump into uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, and look first of all this morning at the resolve of the master. In verse 32, it says, And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them. So uh, he was walking ahead of the disciples, and, and with uh, maybe uh, a little bit faster of a pace than the disciples were keeping or were used to keeping, and Jesus went before them. And, uh, and, and maybe you've heard of the, the phrases, or maybe you've used it as, as parents. I know we have uh, the phrase lollygagging or dilly-dallying, okay? Jesus wasn't doing anything of that nature here. He was moving with a noticeable focus and intent in his, high, in his eyes. There was a goal in mind, and it showed in the steps that he was taking. Why was he so resolved? Well, first of all, he was focused on a place. In verse 32, it says, And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was higher in elevation than many of the other areas in that, air, in that region. And so when it says they were going up to Jerusalem, it wasn't necessarily they were going north, uh, but they were going up in, in elevation. And, and so, uh, but there was a place that he was focused on going to. And uh, knowing all that would transpire in Jerusalem, Jesus was still determined and focused to go there in order to fulfill the plan of redemption. Uh, many would soon also make a trip similar uh, to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Passover. Because if you remember when Jesus died, it was right around the Passover. And of course, Jesus was the Passover lamb. But uh, many would go to celebrate and uh, participate in the Passover. And so a lot of people were headed to Jer Jerusalem. And the temple, of course, was located there. And Jer Jerusalem began to swell with visitors at this time of year. Jesus was certainly a Jew, but his focus was not on the sacrifices that would be offered in the temple. No, he was focused on Calvary's Hill just outside of the gates of the city. 
because he was going to be the sacrifice, the greatest sacrifice of all. And he was focused on a place in Luke chapter number 9. In verse 51, the Bible says this, It came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So he was focused on a place. Well, why was he so focused on a place? Because he was also focused on a purpose. There was a good reason he was determined in his walk, because it was about to be the time that the world had been waiting for for over 4,000 years. The moment when God would send forth his son and when that innocent lamb of God would be slain for the sins of the world. It all came down to this. See, in Mark chapter number 10, it was just a few days later that Jesus would become our substitute on the cross. In just a few days, Jesus would pay the price for our sin debt once and for all. In just a few short days, Jesus would cry triumphantly from the cross, It is finished as he completed the work which his father gave him to do. So yeah, there was a definite resolve and focus in his eyes. And as he's walking, the, uh, the disciples kind of noticed something different about his walk. And he went on before and he, he wasn't walking with them as much as he was walking on in front of them. And knowing that he was about to face all of that, knowing what he was about to go through, he still had the resolve to walk on and with a quickness in his step. I don't know if you have ever been called to the principal's office. I have on a couple of occasions. Once when I was in trouble and uh, once when I found out that my brother had chicken pox. And so I had to go home that day. But I remember going and walking on that hall and getting a little distracted. Not really hurrying in my step because I didn't want to face what was waiting for me there at the principal's office. But Jesus knew full well what he was about to face there in Jerusalem. And the Bible says he went on before. He continued to walk, and there was a definite resolve in his, in his pace and, and in his eyes, even knowing what he was about to face. Uh, I'm thankful for his willingness to walk towards sacrifice. And of course, it compels me to do the same. My natural tendency, and I'm sure yours is too, is to walk away from hardship and suffering and sacrifice and instead walk toward comfort and ease. But Jesus walked toward the cross and did so with determination. What tremendous courage he had and what a savior. Philip P. Bliss wrote these words as he considered what Jesus did for him. He said, man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. You can imagine Peter sharing this portion with Mark. Because remember, as we started this uh, study in the Gospel of Mark, we said that Mark got a lot of his information from Peter, the Apostle. And I can just picture in my mind's eye that uh, Peter and Mark are sitting across the table from each other. And, and uh, Peter's getting to this part about when Jesus is transitioning and heading towards Jerusalem. And I imagine he said, you know, there was something a little different about the way he was walking. He said, I, I imagine he said, I've seen him walk many times before. I even got to see him walk on water. But this walk the walk to Jerusalem 
there was something a little different about this one. So when you write what you're going to write, Mark, can you include something about that, that he went on before, and that there was something about the fact that there was a resolve in his step, and he was moving fast. There was a noticeable resolve. Why? Because Jesus was focused on a place and a purpose. He knew the where and the why, and that caused him to be determined to have a resolve. But notice next that this resolve triggered a response from the men. The response of the men. In verse number 32, as they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, Jesus went before them, and here's the response of the men. They were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. How did the disciples react to this different pace that Jesus was keeping as he walked toward the hostile territory known as Jerusalem? Well, first of all, they were amazed. It says so in verse number 32. Since Jesus was walking with a noticeable resolve and purpose in his step up ahead, well, let me just have a couple guys come on up here. How about Mason and Luke, you guys come on up. Okay, we're going to let Mason be represent the Lord. Okay, and then you and I are going to be disciples. Okay, so you come up over here. And uh, we're walking, and you're facing that direction, okay? We're walking, and Jesus is up before us. And the disciples are, are back here, and, and, and we're, we're kind of watching what's happening, and we're headed to Jerusalem. Now, as we're walking as disciples, who are we looking at? We're looking at Jesus. And as we're walking along, we're fixed upon him. Now, normally, I would imagine Jesus was kind of in the middle of in the midst of the disciples, but on this particular journey, Jesus was in front of them, so all of them, their eyes were focused on Jesus. Thank you. You guys can be seated. So he was the object of their focus. They were looking at him, and as they did, I can, I can just picture them, can't you, that uh, they were thinking back to some of the miracles as they look at, I, I do this with our children. I'll, I'll take a moment and when I can kind of see them in the distance, I'll just kind of stare at them. That's kind of creepy, I know. But, uh, but, but, I'll, but I'll think about, you know, when they were born and some of the fun memories that we have with them growing up and just seeing them where they are. I did that yesterday, Faith. Sorry, this is, again, creepy. But you were, we were door knocking, and you were coming towards me, and, uh, and I saw this, you know, beautiful teen, teenage girl coming towards me knowing that was my daughter, and I was like, I remember when she was a little girl, and, and uh, you know, she was bald like me, and we were bald and beautiful <laughs> together. Those were the days I had a fellow bald person in the family. And, and just thinking about, well, I imagine those disciples, as they were looking at the back of Jesus Christ walking towards Jerusalem, I imagine they kind of thought back to some of the memories that they had with the Savior. Some of the miracles that he performed and, and maybe the, the feeding of the 5,000, maybe healing some of the people that he healed of blindness and the, the hands and raising those who couldn't walk and doing all those things and, and, and just going, what a, what a man. Wow. And then maybe even thinking about some of the things, that, the shocking things that Jesus was, was teaching them and had taught them. They, they, they were probably kind of rehashing some of those lessons that they had been taught some things that you know uh, Peter said and and then Jesus rebuked them and the lessons that came out of those times they, they were amazed at no doubt his 
um, his love and patience towards them. You know, like he, he probably should have left us on the side of the road a long time ago, but here he lets us continue following him. They were amazed. But I imagine they were amazed at him, but also that they were on their way to Jerusalem, the headquarters of hatred for Jesus. See, much of the opposition they faced up to this point came from Jerusalem. And now Jesus is marching with determination to this place filled with animosity toward him. They were surprised, astonished, astounded. And the Bible word here, amazed at Jesus, who, was, who Jesus was and what he was doing in taking this determined walk. As I thought about that, I thought, look, as followers of the Lord, we're good and content when the Lord, our shepherd, leads us by the green pastures. Like, that's cool with us. And, and, it's, and it's fine with us when he leads us beside the still waters. Those are, those are nice times. We're cool and content when that happens. But when he leads us into the valley of the shadow of death, we're amazed and shocked like the disciples were because that's really where Jesus was heading when he went to Jerusalem. He was literally heading to the valley of the shadow of death. And we began to think, okay, Lord, I thought you loved me. Why are you leading me here? I, I don't like this. This isn't comfortable for, you, for, for us to be following you to Jerusalem. Can't we go somewhere a little a little more friendly to us? Can't we go somewhere where people don't want to kill us? Maybe there's somebody here today, you're in the midst of a trial or tribulation. You can relate with these disciples as they're following Jesus into a very uncomfortable place. And so no doubt they were amazed. Yes, they were amazed at the individual they were following, but I am sure they were also amazed at the fact that we're walking towards this hornet's nest of hatred towards Jesus. This was the disciples. They were amazed, no doubt, as to who Jesus was, but also amazed as to what he was doing and where he was leading them. And why would he walk towards this? And with purpose, determination, resolve too. So they were amazed. But notice, secondly, they were afraid. Verse 32 says, they were in the way going up to Jerusalem and Jesus went before them and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. No kidding. They were headed to Jerusalem and they had no idea what the future held for them. They knew they were walking into a hornet's nest of hatred. And this was a very dangerous direction to be heading and they knew it. Mark records simply that these men felt fear. They were afraid. I imagine they thought that there was a very good chance that they would possibly lose their lives as they went into Jerusalem. So they were afraid. And I know that as we follow the Lord, there's times that can potentially produce or trigger fear in our hearts about what the future holds. They were afraid. And so when that happens in our lives, just know that we're in good company. The 12 who were closest to Jesus felt fear and were not afraid and not um, shy about mentioning it because here in verse 32 it says, 
and they were afraid. So they were amazed, they were afraid, but I want us to see thirdly, they were advancing. They were advancing. Verse 32, and they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed, and here it is, and as they followed, they were afraid, but they continued to follow. Next Monday, not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow, is June 6th. And next Monday, it will mark 78 years since the Allied forces stormed Normandy on what would be known as D-Day. And that would become the largest seaborne invasion in history. When the Allied forces stormed Normandy. They knew it would be a dangerous mission. But in spite of the amazement and fear, they advanced. I have a picture of some of the men on the boat that went to Normandy that day. Knowing some of the danger that they would face and the possibility that they will not live another day. And many of them, I don't even know if all of them died that day. Perhaps all of them did. And yet, they still got on the boat. The video we watched at the beginning of the service, when it said, will you get in the boat? They said yes. And I'm glad they did. I'm thankful for their bravery, but the look on these young men who were about the same age as my oldest son, and maybe even my youngest son, I don't even know how old these men were. This could have been the look on the faces of the disciples as well as they headed to their Normandy, also known as Jerusalem. And despite the amazement of the moment and fear that it brought the disciples, they continued to follow him. They advanced. They continued. Christian brother and sister, as we look at all that's going on in our world today, and what may be coming down the road, we may be amazed and shocked at some of the things that are happening in our world today as we read the news and as we hear people talk about what's coming. It, it causes amazement, and, and, and many times it causes us to be afraid as well. But can I encourage us to do what the disciples did, to keep following, to advance? Uh, the best way, by the way, to prepare for the future. There's a lot of good things we could do, but staying close to the Savior, continuing to follow Him. And I, and I know that there's a lot of things that I'm not saying we shouldn't do other things, but primarily I want to encourage our church family in the days ahead when the economy is not great and perhaps the store shelves are bearing and, and times get tough to go forward by faith and to keep following your great shepherd, knowing that he will provide and protect his flock. Yes, even during the Biden administration. Let's keep advancing. The disciples, as they were walking there looking at Jesus, you can 
If you put yourselves in their sandals, you can feel the fear. You can feel the, the weight of the moment because you know what's about to happen. Not quite like Jesus does, but, but you know that, hey, this is not a good place to be going right now. And yet they continue to put one foot in front of the other, walking toward a very hostile area. I don't know what the future holds for Christians here in America. I don't. But regardless of what the future holds, let's keep advancing. Let's keep following the Savior. And no matter what the costs are, the disciples are willing to do that. And I'm thankful for it. These disciples, they had no idea what the future held for them, but they continued to follow knowing the one who held the future. And this year, as we consider our church theme, continue, may we do as the disciples did. May we advance even when the times are amazing and we may be afraid. Let's continue. So in this brief passage, we see the resolve of the master and the response of the man. Now, let's look at the reason for the mission. Verse number 33 and 34. Well, back in verse 32, he took again the 12 and began to tell them what things should happen unto him. As he's walking, I imagine he kind of, of course, he knows all things, and he sensed their amazement and their fear. He said, you know what? It's time to have a little powwow. It's time to explain why we're headed up to Jerusalem and what's about to happen. And I'm going to share some more details that I have not shared before with my disciples about what I'm about to do. And this isn't going to necessarily comfort them, but to prepare them for what's about to come down the pike. By the way, this isn't the first prediction of uh, when he was about to be um, all that he was going to go through in Jerusalem. If you go back to Mark chapter number eight very quickly. Let's do just a super fast review. Mark 8.31. We're going to look at 8.31, 9.31, and then back here in 10.33. 8.31 says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then 9.31. After... Uh, after Jesus teaches them about the importance of prayer and fasting, he taught the disciples in 931, the Son of Man is delivered in the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. And then back here in 10, 33 and 34, here's the third prediction. But now he gives them more information, more details. Uh, what, were, what was the reason for this determined walk to Jerusalem. Well, first of all, uh, that he would be sentenced. Verse number 33, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. Son of man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. So their greatest fear was going to come to pass. I'm sure that the disciples said, no, we've got to protect Jesus from being killed. And yet Jesus says, no, no, this is why we're going, so that I can be sentenced and condemned to death. Because 
The innocent lamb of God must die and his blood must be shed so that sins could be forgiven. And consider this. And this kind of blew my mind this week as I was just thinking about this. Jesus, who is the Lord of life, Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, would be sentenced to die. Life tasted death so that you and I could live. Philippians 2.8 says this, And being found in fashion as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Jesus said, Hey, we are going to go into this hornet's nest. We are going to go into this hostile territory, and guess what? I am going to be delivered into, unto the chief priests, the guys who have been conspiring against me for all these uh, months to try to destroy me. I'm going to go and basically turn myself in. And they're not going to take my life from me. I'm going to lay it down of my own accord. But I'm going to be delivered into the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, the Romans. And the Romans are going to completely torture and humiliate him. So first he says the reason for the mission is that he would be sentenced. And then secondly, that he would suffer. Verse 34 says, And they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him. These details aren't in the other two predictions that we looked at in 831 and in 931, but they are here in verse 34 because now the disciples, as we're getting closer, they need to understand that Jesus is going to go through some terrible torture. And notice the word and that Jesus uses here in verses 33 and 34. Uh, let, me, let me read it again with emphasis on those. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. So in these two verses, nine times the word and appears, and emphasizing the suffering that Jesus would endure. Six more details never before revealed in this passage here that he did not reveal in the last two. The Lord of glory, God in human flesh, the creator would experience unbelievable torture and humiliation as he is mocked. Mocked. As he is scourged and as he is spit upon. If I went up to one of you today and spit upon you, probably wouldn't take it really well you wouldn't be like hey would you do that again that was fun you'd be like hello covid monkeypox hello don't be spitting on me that's nasty and yet the creator was spit upon by his creation wow 
I'm going to take a moment and read a little bit of what Jesus endured for us on the cross as far as the suffering goes, as recorded in and prophesied about in Isaiah 53. It said in verse 2 of that chapter, he says, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Oh, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So Jesus suffered. And then it says in verse number 34, he's going to experience mockery, humiliation. He's going to experience physical torture with the scourging. Again, more humiliation and mockery with the spit. And then he's going to die and shall kill him. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he walk towards Jerusalem knowing that this is going to happen? And why would he go forward and go through uh, this type of grueling death? Well, I would say for a couple reasons. Number one, to communicate his love for us. Romans 5.8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it wasn't that he just got shot in the head and it ended it all. No, no, he went through tremendous torture and horrible pain as he went through that crucifixion. He did that to communicate his love for us. John 15, 13, a verse that is seen quite a bit this time of year as we remember Memorial Day. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus did lay down his life for you and for me, his friends. We weren't really his friends. We were his enemies, and he still laid down his life for us. He did all that because he loves you, but there was another reason the Lord Jesus endured the suffering and was willing to be our sacrifice. This is Memorial Day weekend. We remember this, the sacrifice of brave men and women who gave their lives so that others could live. I'm going to mention four different names. In recent years, the United States Marine Corps 
awarded the Navy Cross, the nation's second highest medal of valor, to the family of Sergeant Raphael Peralta. And he was killed in Iraq in 2004. Very briefly, according to the Marines who were with him at the time of his death, Peralta was shot in the head, but still was alive and managed to pull a grenade that the enemy had thrown, and he pulled that grenade underneath his body, thus saving the lives of the others who were with him. Then there was Jason Dunham. He was a Marine corporal who covered a grenade with his helmet to save other Marines at the loss of his own life back in 2004, the same year Seth was born. Michael Mansour, a Navy SEAL who smothered a grenade on a rooftop. And then there was Ross McGinnis, an Army specialist who dove on a grenade that had been thrown into his Humvee in Iraq in 2006, sacrificing himself all in order to save four others in that vehicle that he was in. You see, these men gave their lives so that others could live. And going back here to Mark chapter number 10, that's exactly why Jesus was willing to suffer. So that you and I could have everlasting life. So that you and I could live forever in heaven. He endured the cross and despised the shame all in order that so you and I could be reconciled to God so that we could spend eternity with him in an extraordinary place called heaven where there will be no more pain, where there will be no more tears, no more cancer. Can I get an amen on that? There'll be no more sickness, no more heartache. There in heaven, there's going to be no more sin and the regret of it. No more loneliness, no more drama. Oh boy, I can't wait for that. No more conflict, no more tension, no more misunderstandings. But instead, there will be everlasting peace and everlasting joy. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he was willing to suffer and be humiliated and scourged and mocked and spit upon. That's why he was willing to go through all of that. So the reason for the mission is that he would be sentenced, that he would suffer, and thirdly, that he would be successful. Verse 34, they shall mock him, shall scourge him, shall spit upon him, shall kill him. But I like this last phrase, don't you? And the third day he shall rise again. <laughs> look, as grim as everything was going to look, and as horrible as everything was going to appear, Jesus promised once again that he would rise from the grave and that he would be successful in the greatest test of his power. I love it. He said, in the third day, he shall rise again. And each time Jesus predicted what he would do for us on the cross, he also included the promise of his resurrection. You go look at 831, 931, and here in uh, 1034, and each time he promises the resurrection. He promised that he would be successful. See, yes, he came to suffer and die for our sins, but praise the Lord, he also came to rise again and be successful and victorious over death, hell, and the grave. He rose again. I love the song that we sing here 
at Cornerstone many times. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. And this resurrection, this success would separate him from all other founders of religion. He alone rose from the dead by his own power. And this would go on to change the lives of countless people throughout history, including many of the people in this room today. So what was the reason for this mission, for this determined walk that Jesus was taking? Well, there was a purpose for it all. Why was he then going to Jerusalem? Well, he shares with the disciples the reason that he would be sentenced, that he would suffer, and that he would be successful. In the book of James, we are told and encouraged and instructed to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Today, we have heard the word and see the resolve of the master, the response of the men, and the reason for the mission. But then, what then should we do with these truths in our own lives so that we would not deceive ourselves? We've heard the word, but now what do we need to do with the word? A couple quick thoughts here as we wrap this up this morning. First of all, number one, be sure of your salvation. As Jesus shared the reasons for their mission to go to Jerusalem, that he'd be sentenced, suffer, and be successful, he did it all so that you could be saved. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. Brave men and women paid the ultimate price so that we could live in freedom here in America, so that we could enjoy the freedom to worship, to have a day with be with family and friends, to eat some hamburgers and hot dogs, to live in the liberty they died to provide and protect. They didn't give their lives so that we would continue to live in bondage and that we would somehow still feel like, oh, well, we're still in bondage to England. No, that's not why they died. They died so that we could live in freedom. Now, Jesus died so that we could be set free from the bondage of our sin and live in true spiritual liberty and freedom. But it will only be so if you have repented of your sin and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for you, his death, his burial, and praise the Lord, his glorious, re glorious resurrection. So, can I ask you the question today, are you saved? Are you born again? Are you part of God's family? You say, oh, I've always been a Christian. No, no, no. Has there been a moment in your life when you realized that you were a sinner and unable to save yourself? And realized that Jesus Christ paid the price for your sin? Has there been a moment in your life where you believed on him and repented of your sin? Has there been a moment? If not, can I encourage you on this Memorial Day weekend to make that most important decision of your life? That's why he did this. Yes, to be obedient to his father, but also to provide a way of salvation for you and for me. So first of all, be sure of your salvation. Secondly, be steadfast in your relationship with God. Those disciples were amazed and they were afraid, but that didn't stop them from advancing. They continued to follow. Are you tempted to quit, to throw in the towel? Let's not quit. Let's not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Let's be steadfast in our relationship with the Lord. Let's hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Why? Because he's faithful to promise. Let's be steadfast. Let's not quit. Let's keep advancing. Let's do what our church theme is for this year. Continue to follow in spite of 
the amazement of what's going on around us and perhaps even the fear that might creep into our hearts. Let's keep going one foot in front of the other. Be steadfast in your relationship with God. And then thirdly, be sharing the gospel. It's a, I know everybody says, everybody has said a lot about what happened in Texas there in that elementary school. And I don't want to oversimplify it. It's a complicated matter. But regardless of whether we should do anything with guns or not, what we need to do is get God to everybody in this country. That's what we, we need to get the gospel out. Now, there, there's other things that perhaps we could do to help some of that, but the number one thing we as believers should be doing is getting the gospel out there. That's what's going to fix this country. And, and look, I'm so glad that I've been set free. I, I'm, I'm glad that I have a home in heaven and that my sins are forgiven. But you know what? The gospel that saved me, it's not meant just for me to kind of keep to myself. It's meant to be shared. It's meant to be proclaimed to everyone that I know. Because look, this message isn't just enough to save me and to change my life. It's also sufficient to save the entire world. The Bible tells us in 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So since this is true, let's not hide it under a bushel. Oh, no. Let's be sharing with everyone we meet who Jesus is and what he has done for them. Too many Christians are like this in their own little world. Can I encourage us this week to take the bushel off and to burn it? <laughs> Let that fire burn that b bushel up so that we can't put it back over the fire, the light. Be sharing the gospel and again, I, I don't want to oversimplify the, the complicated matter that, that happened. Obviously, we need to be praying for the families um, and the affected community. But I think that that should inspire us again to get off our blessed assurance and get out on the highways and byways and get the gospel out. Because that's what that kid needed. He needed to get saved. And if had somebody told him the gospel and, and given him the gospel, and maybe he would have received it. And maybe he would have, uh, and obviously as a believer, that, that, that's very unlikely to happen. That, that would have changed everything. And so I've been encouraged and, and challenged to be more faithful in my witness. That's what people need. No, we need to get more security in schools. That may be so. We need to get the gospel out. That's what we can be doing and what we should be doing here in our own community. So what should we do with the message we heard today? Be sure of your salvation. Be steadfast in your relationship with God and be sharing the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to meet together today. And Lord, as we consider this unique walk that you and the disciples were making to Jerusalem, can only imagine all the things that were going through everybody's minds. But we're thankful, Lord, for your purpose and your resolve to walk toward 
that time of sacrifice. And Lord, thank you that the disciples were willing to follow too, in spite of their fear and shock at what was going on. And Lord, thank you most of all for the reason that you made that walk. To be sentenced to die, to suffer, but praise the Lord. Thank you for being willing to be successful, for being successful over death, hell, and the grave. Lord, help us to not just be hearers, but now doers of the word. Help us, Lord, to apply the truth to our life by making sure that we are part of your family, by having a determination in our own walk that we're going to be steadfast in the faith and that we're going to continue without wavering. And then, Lord, help us to be sharing the gospel. That's what this That's what our world needs. That's what people need. So, Lord, you've called us and you've given us responsibility to do that. Help us to be faithful to do so. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. We're just going to have a a brief time of prayer and decision there in your seat as uh, Miss Pat begins to play.